I've been blown away by some of the young people that I've worked with over the decades who are incredibly mature. And I've equally been blown away by older people who are grossly immature. And so James will make it clear it's not just indexed to how old you are. It's indexed to how dependent you are, how renewed your mind is, and how much you are willing to obey what you know. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in our study in the book of James, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And today, Pastor Carl explains that God wants us to have a life that reflects the Lord Jesus and the wisdom that he embodied. Let's join Pastor Carl as he begins in verse 13. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the epistle of James, chapter 3. James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament because it is a book that is just filled and overflowing with practical wisdom. It's a practical book written by a practical man dealing with some very practical issues so that you and I can put it into practice. Now, we are living in an information age, but we are certainly not living in an age of wisdom. We have people who are incredibly successful at making a living, but who are totally failures and bankrupt at how to make a life. And God wants us to make a life, a life that would reflect the Lord Jesus and the wisdom that he basically embodied, because he was indeed and is forever the embodiment of wisdom. Now, if you're with us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter through this short little epistle, and many of us are trying to read it once a week, and we hope to do that until we're finished probably in May or early June. In either case, we have in these recent chapters examined three characteristics of a maturing, growing Christian. If you remember in chapter one, we saw that a growing Christian is someone who's patient in trouble. In chapter 2, we saw that he is a person who practices the truth. And then in chapter 3, in the first half, we saw that he's an individual who has power over the tongue. And so that's where we want to pick it up as he continues this dialogue on the one who pursues now wisdom. We're going to read six verses. We're going to just look at verses 13 through 18 today. I hope you have a Bible. Follow along with me. James chapter 3, beginning now in verse 13. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace." Let me just set the context. Some of you are walking into this passage for the first time. If you remember, chapter 3 divides into two sections. In verses 1 through 12, the Apostle James deals with the subject of the tongue. 
And now in verses 13 through 18, he deals with the topic of wisdom. And really what he's giving us are two tests for leadership. Remember, he's dealing with someone who wants to be a teacher, a pastor, an elder, a leader of sorts in the church. And so if you remember, he began this chapter with a negative exhortation. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And so if you were here last time, we saw that he was not speaking against the common responsibility that every Christian is to exercise. By this time, you, you plural, the writer of the Hebrews says, ought to be teachers. There's a common responsibility that as we grow in Christ, there ought to be some basic questions that we can answer and help other people with. It's part of the Great Commission. Neither is he speaking against the stewardship of spiritual gifts when he says, let not many of you become teachers. Because there's this spiritual gift of teaching, and there's a spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. And he is not saying, don't use your gift. In fact, Peter exhorts us as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, we are to exercise that gift. Rather, he's dealing with someone who serves professionally as a pastor, someone who is a professional teacher of the Word of God. And he is simply saying at the start of this chapter, think twice. Make sure that God has called you. Don't be too quick to swell the ranks of those who are to teach because a teacher uses his tongue. And God will, at the judgment of the just, do a careful evaluation of how we used our tongue. It is indeed the tool of the trade. And so with leaders in the church, it is essential that they are called of God. In his lips, what he says should also match his life. And that's what he's going to focus on in verses 13 through 18. And of course, he is writing to a whole congregation, really to several congregations, to the diaspora, as we saw in the opening verses, to Jews who are scattered about. And so he is broadening the application to every Christian. But our life must match our lips. But initially, he's really giving two tests for those who want to lead God's church. Number one, can I control my tongue? That's test number one. Test number two, am I a person of wisdom and understanding? Suppose you were asked to serve on a team to help find a pastor for your church, and sadly, I get calls from churches, and they say, help me to find a pastor. Well, tell me what your procedure is. And, well, we've got someone from the youth group and someone from the women's ministry and someone from this, and they're all going together. And That's not how you find a pastor, number one. You look for wise, godly elders or in some church polities, deacons, who launched the process. The congregation may have a say in the final vote, but you have to have wise people. So if you were part of a, such a team, what would you look for? Sadly, many times people just look for the years of experience in the ministry or the number of degrees after their name. I know more Dr. Gumballs who are not qualified to do anything when it comes to being a pastor. It's not just having a degree after your name. It's not just that you've been in the ministry for 25 years. The average pastor stays two years in a church. 
He runs out of his sermons, and so he goes and he preaches them all over again in another church. James would tell us God's not interested in credentials. We might be, but God is interested in character. And he's highlighting two principal areas, the character of the tongue and the character of wisdom. And by wisdom, it's not necessarily directly correlated to how old you are. I have been blown away by some of the young people that I've worked with over the decades who are incredibly mature. And I have equally been blown away by older people who are grossly immature. And so James will make it clear it's not just indexed to how old you are. It's indexed to how dependent you are, how renewed your mind is, and how much you are willing to obey what you know. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, you can see we've divided this into three sections as James divides it. In verse 13, he speaks something about the value of wisdom. In verses 14 through 16, the vices of wisdom. And, uh, and then uh, he will complete it with the virtues of wisdom. So let's start in verse 13 with the value of genuine wisdom. Now, please notice, do not miss how verse 13 is launched with a question. Who among you is wise in understanding? You can almost see him standing up in a congregation. I want to ask you all a question. How many of you are wise? Anyone here this morning wise in understanding? We might think, well, maybe some Bible teacher would stand up, or maybe there would be a buzz in the congregation pointing to one or two people. But in reality, James is asking a very personal question. Are you, you personally, wise and understanding? Now, he knows that no one is going to raise their hand and say, not me, I'm just an idiot. I'll go sit in the back of the classroom, and we'll let the wise people respond to you. No, I think he is recognizing that at least the majority of the people might say, hey, look, I may not be as wise as I ought to be, and I certainly don't want to sound presumptuous, but I'm a pretty intelligent people, person. I think I've got a grip on things. Now, before we get too far here, let me just say that the words wise and understanding are not repetitive. There are two distinct words with two distinct thoughts. Sometimes you will have words in Scripture that are in the same sentence that reflect each other, not in this particular case. So we want to look at these two words so that we can really ask and answer, not just to James, but to the Lord himself, am I a wise an understanding person. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. Don't lose, James. If you're new to the Bible, find the Psalms. It's about dead center. And fan to the left through Job, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, and then you'll come to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. And turn, if you would, to chapter 1. Second Chronicles chapter 1. And I want you to follow along. Uh, with what took place on this marvelous occasion 
when Solomon and the people of Israel come before the Lord. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Now the bronze altar, which Bezalel, the son of Uri, you remember him, right? He, uh, I told my physician one time, I said, You're my Bezalel. He said, Who's Bezalel? I knew he was a born-again Christian. I said, Bezalel was a man that God had given great skill to. He filled him with the Spirit to be able to craft and make things. I said, you're my Bezalel, and I've been praying for you that you do this surgery correctly. Anyway, he uh, speaks here of the bronze altar, which Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made. And that was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly sought it out. Solomon went up there before the Lord to the bronze altar, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. Now, if you know this portion of Scripture, then you know that Solomon is just beginning his reign. And God appears to him and gives him an incredible promise. Solomon, anything you want... Just name it. When I was in the sixth grade, my teacher, Miss Courtney, posed a question to the class. She said, if you had just one wish, what would you ask for? And she went around the class as we raised our hands, and I said, well, Miss Courtney, I would ask for a million dollars. Well, the girl who sat next to me was Ann Teschner, who, unlike me, was raised in a Bible-believing home. And she said, I would ask God for wisdom. And I thought that was the stupidest answer I'd ever heard. I mean, what can you do with wisdom? What can you buy with wisdom? Only later to discover, as I came to Christ, that she was one of the few born-again Christians that I knew. In either case, Solomon does not ask for something out of greed. He asks for wisdom. Notice verses 8 and 9 here of this chapter. Solomon said to God, you have dealt with my father David with great loving kindness. Loving kindness. It's the Greek, it's the Hebrew word kesed. We have a daughter-in-law named kesed. It's difficult to capture with a single English word. People mispronounce it all the time. It's not hesed. It's kesed. Say that, kesed. So when you see my daughter-in-law, her name is Kesset, and only a seminary president and a seminary professor would give a child that kind of name. It's a beautiful name. And when we brought her to Israel with us, the Jewish people loved her name. They were just enamored by the fact that she was named Kesset. Well, you have dealt with my father David with great Kesset and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, your promise to my father David is fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. So before Solomon responds to God's offer of asking for something, he begins by just praising God for his faithfulness. And then in verse 10, he says, Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I might go out and come in before this people. That's a Hebraic expression that would describe innocence, like a child who is totally dependent. That I might fulfill my duties and in essence be a good king. For who can rule this great people of yours? So while he's not literally 
a little boy. He is in heart. He's a child in heart. And he asks God for wisdom and knowledge, not the theoretical kind of knowledge that you can uh, evaluate abstract matters with, not issues of the head, but issues of the heart. How do I know that? Because in the parallel text, you might want to put in the margin 1 Kings 3.9 next to verse 10. Let me read 1 Kings 3.9. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. Now remember, this is the king's son. He's intelligent. He's been well-educated and schooled. But he recognized that he needed wisdom, and only God can provide wisdom. Look at verse 11. God said to Solomon, because you had this in mind and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings who were before you has possessed, nor those who will come after you. If you study the nature of wisdom in Scripture, a very similar thought when Peter speaks of true knowledge, it's the ability to live life well. It's not just amassing information. But it's being able to take that information and to apply it to life. Information and wisdom go together. It's not done in a vacuum. It's based on revelation. But it's based on revelation that God has given in Scripture. You mark it down big and plain and clearly. People who know a lot may be proud. People who have wisdom are humble because they recognize God gave it to them. Look, there are some very incredibly bright people in the history of the world. Einstein was considered a genius when it came to information. But when it came to wisdom, he was absolutely bankrupt. You say, how do you know? Because when he heard the claims of Jesus Christ, he defiantly rejected them. And God said in Proverbs 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And sadly, that man never made it to first base. See, it's not a matter of the fact that you may be a genius in the world's eyes. Jesus made this distinction, if you remember, when he compared his own disciples with the highly educated Pharisees of his day in Luke chapter 10. They were well-schooled in history and theology and in language more than just about any other single group of people in all of Israel. And Jesus in his prayer said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, speaking of the Pharisees in the context, and have revealed them to infants, speaking of his disciples. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. 
And so like Solomon, who pictured himself like a child, Jesus here uses a similar idiom of an infant, people who do not rely upon themselves, but who are totally dependent on God. And so again, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. Wisdom and understanding That's something the Pharisees did not have. They didn't really have genuine understanding. And interestingly, the Hebrew word for understanding is a word related to shamar. It literally means a hearing heart. We've spoken in recent weeks in our basic discipleship series about the Shema, the verb hear, hear, O Israel. And so the the word that is used in both Greek and Hebrew is in reference to somebody who has a hearing heart. And that's what they didn't have. They're educated, but they didn't have a hearing heart. Unlike the fishermen, who for the most part were uneducated, they had the ability to hear. Now, go back to James. I know that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, but an important one. James chapter 3. He is asking the question, who among you is wise and understanding? And again, those two words might sound redundant, but they are not. The word understanding, it's actually found only once in all the New Testament right here. But as you study it in literature outside of the New Testament, you discover that it refers to someone who is highly skilled in the practicing of their particular skill. And so when James says, who among you is wise and understanding, he responds by answering his own question. He says, all right, show me. Show me if you're wise and understanding. Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. Now, please consider with me the value value that the Apostle James places on wisdom and understanding. He doesn't say, who among you is rich? He doesn't say, who among you is famous? Who among you are successful? Who among you are well-educated? Who among you are popular? Who among you are ambitious? But who among you are wise and understanding? And we need to put the premium where God puts it. Now, up until this time, if you remember, wisdom has only been mentioned once in James chapter 1 and verse 5. He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We saw contextually, you're going through a trial of life. And it's in the midst of a trial that we are to crowd to God for wisdom. God, what are you trying to accomplish in this trial? Now, certainly you could apply the principle to other realms, but that's its principal application in its original context. But when we can understand the difference between wisdom and just knowledge or information, then we can understand why so many people are on the broad road that leads to destruction and so few are on the narrow road that leads to life. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have a record of Christ's life. Then you have the Acts of the Apostles, which is the record of the first 30 years of church history. Then you have Romans, which is really the great constitution of the Christian faith. And then you come to 1 Corinthians. And turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you know anything about the Corinthians, they're Greeks. 
And the Greeks place great, great um, confidence and premium on the kind of wisdom that they possessed. And Paul's going to contrast the kind of wisdom that the Greeks were known for and the kind of wisdom that really pleases God. Look at 1 Corinthians 1 in verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved by it, it is the power of God. When you preach the cross to people, when you speak about the truth of God's plan of salvation, many will consider it foolishness. I was with my son yesterday. I'm sorry I missed the work day. It's the only one, as far as I know, I've missed in 30 years. But we had to change the date for one reason or another, and I had a meeting. And nonetheless, I was with my son Jordan yesterday, and we encountered this couple as it turns out, I said, hey, by the way, James, where do you go to church? And he told us, and I knew the church and knew its original pastor who had been there for 30-some years. And I said, oh, that's a great church. And, and then she chided in about this Presbyterian church she went to. I said, oh, I said, is that a um, PCA church, meaning Presbyterian Church of America, which at least historically, have been the conservative Bible-believing Presbyterians, so they are struggling right now. Uh, in either case, she said, mm, she kind of went on, and I said, well, I said, uh, I, I, are they Bible-believing? I don't want to get into that. I said, okay, and so we went on with the conversation, and at some point I said, no, I didn't mean to be offensive. Oh, no, I'm not offended. I said, you know, it doesn't really matter whether the stripe says Presbyterian or Baptist or whatever it might be. The main thing, and I have articulated the plan of salvation, that we've come to a point in our life where we admit we are bankrupt and helpless, and we need to be forgiven because our sin is wrong and offensive, and God wants to forgive it and change it, and he can only do it through the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so she immediately, as a Presbyterian, because the more liberal a church gets, the more typically liturgical they get, well, you know, Lent is so important to me. I said, well, Lent is important. It's really an opportunity to reflect and to think about what the Lord Jesus did in these days leading up to the cross and why he died and so on and so forth. And, but you see, her mind went to religious activity, to the things that you do to merit salvation, where the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to people, brings us to the substitutionary death of Christ. And so he quotes the prophet Isaiah here in verse 19. You'll see the textual change in all caps, showing you it's an Old Testament quotation, this case from Isaiah 29. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Then he asks in verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For a sense in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. 
God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Those who do not rely upon themselves, but are totally dependent on God, are those who have true wisdom. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 008. Maybe you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we search the scriptures.